Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 8, Episode 62. Last week, I covered a couple of things I missed in the main body of this chapter, specifically the Ishmaelites and the theories on who wrote the book of Judges. If you missed that episode, you should really go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm covering the two remaining topics, the people in place known as mine, and grain threshing. And with that, let's get started. First up this week are the people known as the Monites, who, naturally, held from the region of Mon, sometimes known as the Wilderness of Mon. They were mentioned relatively early in Judges, in chapter 10, as one of the people God had delivered the Israelites from. This was a place said to be in the highlands of the territory allotted to Judah, thought to be located in the modern Kirbit Mine. This was one of the places where David and his men hid from King Saul. It was also the home region of Nabal, the rich but callous property owner who refused to support David's men, as found in 1 Samuel 25. In the Septuagint version of 1 Samuel, David retreated to the wilderness of Mon after the death of Samuel. Note that in the Masoretic text, he went to the wilderness of Paran. Obviously, that place was in the wilderness. It was also one of the stops in the Exodus journey. All of the translations I use for the podcast say it was Paran, though the NIV notes the alternate location of Mon. Paran was also where Hagar and Ishmael were sent into exile after leaving Abraham's house. As for the people with the name Mon, along with the Sidonians and Amalekites, they oppressed the people of Israel. While the location was mentioned several times in the Old Testament, the people by the same name are mentioned nowhere else, only in Judges. Which, as you probably can guess by now, means we know nothing else about them. It's likely they were extremely minor or were also known by another name. There are researchers who have proposed that Mine was a descendant of Hebron, the son of Kohath, making him the grandson of Levi. And that's little known about the Mineites. The next, and the last topic for the book of Judges, is grain threshing. This technology, as simple as it may seem, has come up a few times. Though, do note, for nomads, as the Israelites roughly were during the Exodus, it wasn't something they regularly employed. Instead, in order for threshing to be necessary, a localized agricultural economy has to develop. And that means staying put, not moving around. At its core, grain threshing is very labor-intensive. It's estimated that at that time, the threshing of grain represented about 25% of the labor needed from planting to harvest to consumption. Up until modern agriculture was developed in the 19th century, threshing was time-consuming and usually laborious, with a bushel of wheat requiring about an hour's worth of labor. Threshing, sometimes called thrashing, at its core, is the process of loosening the edible part of the grain or other crop from the straw it's attached to. In the overall process, it's the step after reaping. 
Do note that threshing itself does not remove the bran from the grain. It is probable that in the beginning, when agriculture was first developed, that the small quantity of grain raised, or gathered, was shelled by hand. But as the quantity harvested increased, the grain was probably beaten out with a stick, or the sheaf beaten against the ground. This likely led to a practice of the ancient Egyptians. They would spread out the loosened sheaves on a circular enclosure of hard ground, and with driven oxen, sheep, or other domesticated animals, continually walk over the sheaves, literally treading the grain. This round treading enclosure was placed on an elevated piece of earth so that when the straw was removed, the wind would blow the chaff away and leave the grain behind. In other areas, and at the same time, the grain would be spread out on the surface of a country road so that the grain may be threshed by the wheels of passing carts and livestock and people. Both of these methods, though, would damage some of the grain. The next step of technology was a threshing sledge, essentially a heavy frame mounted with three or more rollers, with the rollers occasionally, sometimes, being spiked. These rollers would revolve as the ox-driven sledge was drawn over the spread-out stalks. Sledges eventually came to have a ridged or grooved bottom. Similar methods were used by the ancient Greeks and even lasted into the modern period in a few places where mechanical locomotion was hard to come by. Also, other methods were employed. One such was in Italy, where a tapered roller was fastened to an upright shaft in the center of a threshing floor. This roller was propelled by a team of oxen kept outside of the building. There was also what's known as a threshing flail. This was essentially a pair of connected sticks used to beat the grain. The pair of sticks likely began as a single stick used to beat out the grain. Pliny the Elder described this method in the first century AD. His nearly verbatim description was that the cereals are threshed in some places with the threshing board on the threshing floor. In others, they are trampled by a train of horses and in others, they are beaten with flails. As for the flail, it would be used in Northern Europe as late as 1860, where, up until then, the flail was the primary method of threshing grain. But it wasn't just used there. The use in Japan has been around for hundreds, if not thousands of years. So, from at least Europe to Japan, and everywhere in between, the practical definition of in wide use. In Japan, it was likely used along with what was known as a stripper. This implement resembled a large comb, fashioned from hard wood, teeth pointed upwards. In this case, after the straw was reaped, it was brought to the comb where it passed through by hand, with the heads being drawn off. After this, it was flailed on the threshing floor. Much more recently, a similar tool, known as a heckle, has been used for combing the heads off flax. Back in the usual practices, after the grain had been beaten out by the flail, or ground out by livestock, or perhaps by hand, the straw was carefully raked away with the kernel and chaff being collected. 
these would then be separated by winnowing. At least, this is what would happen when the wind was available. This process consisted of tossing the mixture of kernel and chaff into the air so that the wind carried away the lighter chaff while the grain fell back on the threshing floor. Embedded in this, but less visible to the novice, the best grain fell nearest while the lightest grain was carried some distance before falling. Essentially, a no-tech grain sorting method. Over the past several years of doing this podcast, I've learned innumerable things. Add grain grading to that list. When there was no wind, fans were employed to separate the wheat from the chaff. At some point later, a winnowing mill was brought on the scene. As near as I can tell, this device consolidated the winnowing and milling into a single process, but that wasn't the only simple technology added to the mix. Barns were constructed with large doors opening in the direction of the prevailing winds so that the wind could blow right through the barn directly across the threshing floor, winnowing inside and in the shade. Even with this, the flail continued to be used for small jobs, such as the winnowing of flower seeds, essentially employed when the quantity grown was small enough to render it unworthy for using a threshing floor. The final thing I'll leave you with is productivity. With a flail, in an average day, a single experienced person could thresh about 8 bushels of wheat, 30 bushels of oats, 16 bushels of barley, 20 bushels of beans, 8 bushels of rye, and 20 bushels of buckwheat. No matter the grain, certainly a hard day's labor. And that's it for judges. Normally the next episode would segue directly into the next Old Testament book and a new chapter of the podcast, in this case, an introduction to Ruth. But instead, next week will be an important programming announcement. Join me then. You really don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes or wherever you get the podcast from. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, If you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.